Guys podcast with Michael Gunger. What a great conversation that was. And in, in between then and now, Tracy and I have been out to California to visit our kids, been up to Ohio to spend some time with our dear friends, the Bakers, preached in their church, went to their son's wedding, and then promptly came home with COVID. So today, I just you call it kind of a post-COVID kind of a mood, post-COVID pre-Thanksgiving kind of a, a mood where all your plans have been sort of turned upside down and you find yourself in 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 your own house uh, doing a puzzle like an old person in Florida does. I'm not an old person, but I am in Florida, so we got you know Christmas music playing on vinyl and we've got a puzzle going on. Uh, and, and yeah, it's Thomas Kincaid painting. So I'm just, I'm, I'm owning the whole stereotype of what it looks like to literally live in Florida doing puzzles at Thanksgiving. So, so today when I woke up and thought, I'm going to do a, a podcast for Thanksgiving for people who are maybe housebound or just don't want to get out, or don't have anything else to do and they just want to spend some time listening to a podcast. What would I do a podcast on? Well, last night on our Tuesday Night Bible Study, we talked about coming wrath and future judgment, and yeah, it was a real ray of sunshine. So I thought, well, let's record, let's record something specifically for that crowd of people who would like to spend their Thanksgiving talking about end times, last days, coming wrath, and future judgment. Now, I, I don't have any guests on this program, so I'm just going to ramble at you for a while and share some things with you. I, I bet you maybe you've not heard before, and and maybe it'll expand your perspective on what God has prepared for us, and hopefully it'll expand your perspective on the new covenant. You know what we've been calling the Christic covenant—that is the new covenant in Christ and what the cross actually accomplished. You don't have to sit around and wait for some. Uh, some uh, uh, Jesus to show up and do something that he didn't already do at the cross, that he's already accomplished everything necessary for you to be reconciled to the Father. Okay, so uh, we're, we're going to talk about that today. And and yet there have been a lot of people that have, have said, oh, well, Bill, there's future wrath and a future judgment to come. And of course, the Bible's really, really huge on that. And so I want to talk about that today. I want to uh, just share with you some perspectives and, and hopefully uh, maybe expand your perspective of the goodness of God and so that you can perhaps see that you don't have to live in Christ. You don't have to live for a moment in fear and uh, and, and realize that the cross actually worked. It did something, All right? So why don't you take real quick and turn to Second Peter chapter 3, and this is where we're going to launch off of today. Uh, if I could back up just a bit and just encourage you, if this podcast today doesn't do it for you. In other words, you think, man, you're leaving a lot of stuff out, Bill. You're not talking about Armageddon, the rapture, the beast, the false prophet, the harlot, the whatever, um, antichrist. Then I encourage you to go to my website, billvanderbush.com, and download, there's a cost to it, but download 10 hours worth of audio teaching on the book of Revelation. It's called Restoring Revelation. BillVanderbush.com, go to the Revelation tab or the Resources tab, and you'll find the audio series Restoring Revelation. That thing is 10 hours of, of incredible information, so much revelation, and will give you a real amazing and interesting perspective, hopefully, on the last days and the end times. 
and especially the posture that you and I need to be in right now. So to talk about what we're going to talk about today, uh, while you're in 2 Peter chapter 3, I just need to catch you up a little bit. Uh, In Genesis chapter 6 verse 20 and Genesis chapter 8 verse 17, you find just a couple of the four places where God made a covenant with Noah. And the language in those places sounds very similar to what God said to Adam when he made this covenant with Adam in creation. In Genesis 9 uh, verses 1 and 7, God, he charges Noah to be fruitful and multiply, fill and subdue the earth. Same thing he said to Adam back at the beginning. And so before and after the flood, the mandate remains the same. This is important to know because the fall of man did not change our assignment. And it also didn't actually diminish your power to accomplish that assignment. What the fall did is it blinded us to the provision of God in our lives. It blinded us to what we have access to in the realm of the kingdom of God. In the fall, there was a measure of fear introduced into the world. As a matter of fact, in uh, uh, in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 2, there's this implication that the, the animal kingdom, the natural world, is now in fear of us in our fallen condition. Uh, you see in Hosea chapter 2 verse 18, God making a covenant that actually includes the natural and the animal world. And so what God is doing is bringing everything back into to alignment, into harmony, and to order with his intention, his purpose, his kingdom. So when we look at the story of Noah and the flood, um, by the way, I do think that there was a literal flood. I don't have any reason not to believe it. People will say, well, that's just mythology. And I hear this a lot these days about things in the Old Testament that we have a hard time with. Well, God wouldn't do this. God didn't do that. And, and we'll say, well, that's just, you know, that's just myth. Well, when Jesus alludes to something and he doesn't call it a myth, then, then I have to take it at face value. And you go, okay, well, how do you deal with the, the fact that what God did in this moment um, literally wiped out all of humanity? I think it's kind of a necessary moment for us as humanity to understand something really, really important about the nature of sin. Because see, if, if dropping the hammer of judgment upon humanity would have fixed the sin issue, the flood would have done it. I mean, that was the biggest hammer that had ever been dropped on humanity, right? And if that hadn't actually happened, then we would today be clamoring for judgment, for God to come and drop the hammer on our enemies, to wipe them out because of their sin, and and to show them the effect of sin so that sin can be eradicated. Oh, wait a minute. We're actually doing that today. People are actually doing this. What happens when we take and, and slap the sticker of a myth to a scriptural story that, that is so important in our history. The flood of Noah teaches us that wiping out humanity was not enough to deal with the issue of sin. There had to be something else to take care of the sin issue. Enter Jesus Christ and the power of the cross. So you take these two things and you compare and contrast them. The flood wasn't enough to take care of the sin issue, but the cross did. And because we don't fully see what the cross did, we don't even know what to preach. And so instead of preaching the victory of the cross, we preach that God is coming and about to judge everybody here. And and so people don't live with a sense of gratitude for what has happened. They live in a sense of fear and dread for what is to come. 
And uh, we got to get back to the message of the cross, the message of the resurrection, and the power of what Jesus actually accomplished. That's the cure for the sin issue, not wiping out humanity. The grace of God actually appears in the story of Noah. The Bible says the thoughts of every man's heart was only evil continually, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful line? God looked at Noah, and apparently Noah looked back. And the invitation of covenant is to seek the face of God. It's always been that way. If you seek his face, you will find grace. Grace for Noah in this moment didn't come from the hand of God, but from the face of God, the eyes of God. The gaze of God, the love in his eyes, imparts grace to anybody who will just simply see him. This is why being selfish is so detrimental. Because when we focus on ourselves, we become the source of our own grace. And that's a limited source. So your ability to forgive yourself is futility. It's as futile as your ability to give grace to others apart from God. There's really only one source of grace, and that's in his eyes. And as you behold him, you reflect what you behold. Noah wasn't just sovereignly selected for grace. God's looking for all of us. The Bible says that God saw every man's heart. He was looking at humanity, but apparently only Noah looked back, returning the gaze of the one with grace in his eyes. Now, why would an entire generation turn from and reject the face of God? Perhaps they were angry with their forefathers. I mean, why would an entire generation in the wilderness in Exodus turn and reject the voice of God? Perhaps they were angry with their forefathers. Why do we today reject the face the eyes, the voice of our Father. He wants to give us grace. Maybe we're angry with our forefathers? Hmm, maybe. But I think more for us, it's because we look at the things going on in the world. The suffering, the injustice, the division, the sin, the wickedness, human trafficking, and all that stuff. And then we wonder, is God really good? And I believe this is the reason why we have, this continually, even as a church, rejected the union of covenant and instead, we embrace the rituals of religion. Because we don't know if he's really good, but we don't know of a better alternative. Now, Jesus exposed the alternative to all of our ideas and concepts about God rooted in misunderstandings of his goodness. Misinformation became disinformation and fueled the concepts of God passed down through the generations that kept people at arm's length from their Heavenly Father. And then Jesus comes to give prodigal mankind, prodigal humanity, the robe and the ring of restored righteousness and, and reconciliation. And this is why all that we're talking about with the Christic covenant is so very important. If we look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, there's a distinction where Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, not because he was righteous, but the revelation of his righteousness comes after he found grace. Listen, don't wait to seek God until you feel righteous enough to do it. Seek him because you don't feel righteous. And in his eyes, you'll find the gift of righteousness, the very impartation of the identity of being the righteousness of God in Christ. So God's grace was given freely, not just to Noah though, but also to his family. If you look at Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 and 22, this is where God sees Noah's gratitude and offering of thanks. And in spite of all of the evil 
that had infiltrated into humanity, God, at this moment, you ready for this? Vows never again to destroy the earth. Not with a flood like this. And this is where you see God literally changing, changing his dealings with men as he tends to do throughout the scriptures. As we said you know, before, listen, God doesn't change, but we do. And so his dealings with man change as we change. And when people preach and speak about how God doesn't change, most, most of the time it's because they want to reinforce a previous expression of judgment where God poured out his wrath on people in the scriptures. And somewhere down inside of us, we feel like the only solution to dealing with the problems of people today is for God to go back to a previous way of dealing with humanity. And we must, and listen to this very carefully, we must search our own motives and heart issues when the grace of God goes too far for our personal perceptions of decency, morality, or right or wrong. And when all is said and done, man has inflicted pain upon himself for generations, every human being will appear and stand before God without exception. And in that moment, we will understand and know the heart and the mind of love and grace that at times has offended our righteous sensibilities. And in that moment, I promise you, we will have nothing of accusation to bring before him. How do I know this? You get a glimpse of this in the book of Revelation. John's vision of the throne room of God. He sees multitudes from every tribe and tongue and nation standing before God. And there's not a single example of protest or outburst or anger or outrage or accusation of unfairness. People in that moment apparently just worship and declare that he's holy. His goodness and his holiness is not offensive in that moment. In that moment, goodness and holiness all makes sense. Even if we don't understand in his holiness, everything makes sense. The word holy, by the way, just simply means other. It's, It's not the moral construct of your personal religious sense of right and wrong. Holy simply means other. In other words, whatever you think God is, he is other. And other is more than what you think. Whatever your concept of God, he's bigger and more. That is the otherness of the holiness of God. We don't reduce God down to to our level of comprehension. We surrender to, to his perspective about us. That means we lay down all of our ideas, all of our concepts, all of our perspectives, all of our us and them mentality. We repent for all of that and begin to realize in this moment there's no place for accusations of any kind of unfairness. In that place before the throne of God, there's no room to defend sin or bring accusation against another. That's just, there's no place for that. Not any room for that. Uh, The problem of sin will never be cured by curses and judgments. It's got to be another solution. There is. It's the cross. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. So again, the flood of Noah teaches us such an important lesson that humanity still has yet to learn, and that's that the harshest judgment is not enough to completely purge and clean the world of sin and wickedness. And for whatever reason, 
It's what we preach that God is about to bring. We've forgotten the lesson of the flood. God knew the outcome. Everything happening in creation, all the way up until now, is there to teach us and to show us. And when Jesus was murdered on the cross, he goes to preach the gospel, Peter says, to that generation. Nicene Creed holds this, that Jesus, after the cross, descended into hell on the third day, rose again. And Peter says what he did was he went to preach the gospel to the souls of men in prison who were disobedient from the time of Noah. In other words, Peter says at the cross, what Jesus goes and does is he actually shares good news with the wickedest generation of all, the only generation in all of history to ever have been completely wiped out because of their total rebellion against God and their their uh, uh, insistence on embracing their own sin. And Jesus goes to preach the good news to them. Consider how offensive that is. The first act of Christ under the new covenant, once the veil is torn, is to give grace to the wickedest generation ever, the people from Noah's day. So then, what do we what do we do with future wrath? I want to read you some scripture today, 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, which I'm stirring up in your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Verse 3. Hang on with me. Know this, first of all, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, as a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless." Okay, we're going to deal with verses 15 through 18 at the end of the podcast today. But I want to go through what I've just talked about today, kind of help you understand just a few things. First off, the judgments here, they're obviously in Peter's future. But here's a question I have for you. 
is what was in Peter's future that he's talking about in our past. And it depends on how you interpret some of these words. You go, well, of course not. Obviously, the heavens and the earth are still here. Bill, we obviously see that the earth is still around. And, and if the earth is still around, that hasn't happened yet. And that has a lot to do with our misunderstanding of the term heavens and earth. The heavens and the earth, or heaven and earth, were what the Jews knew as the temple. The place that had been constructed where God and man had been involved in the construction process, but a, a physical geographical location on earth where God and man met together. And to the Jews, when you read the phrase heavens and earth or heaven and earth, you would be thinking of the temple. Why? Because Jews didn't believe in going to heaven when you die. They were going to Abraham's bosom. They didn't believe in hell. And so heaven and earth was that place, that physical location that was just in Jerusalem, the temple where the Holy of Holies was, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the veil was, where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. That was the place where heaven and earth meant, the divine and the physical, the spiritual and the natural came into connection in the temple, the place of worship. It's where you went to sacrifice, and it's where you, you got righteousness, like the righteousness store. You go and you pay your sacrificial offering, and you walk away justified and righteous. And so this is a really important thing to understand. When we see the phrase here in Second Peter, heaven and earth, most of the time when you see earth, you, you think of cosmos or the world, the cosmos. That is everything that's qualified to be a creation. But that's not the word for earth here. It's just the word gi, which just means just the, the earth or the land or also the system of either government, religiously or politically, that could be the old covenant system or whatever national system that you're dealing with here. So when he's talking about the heavens and the earth passing away and being destroyed, he's not talking about the physical world that we're living in being destroyed. He's talking about the system, specifically to them, the old covenant system along with the temple would have to be destroyed. Keep in mind, this is what the disciples asked Jesus back in Matthew when they said, listen, uh, when he, he walks by the temple and he says, I tell you the truth, there's not one stone left upon another here that won't be thrown down. Next phrase you see is, is the disciples scratching their heads going, my goodness, when will these things be? And that's when Jesus gives this end time diatribe about what is about to take place. And it was not long after that, that Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome and the temple was burned up, right? Uh, Jesus literally said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. What was he talking about? That, uh, that everything that we live on and even the heavens where the throne room is, it's all going to be passing away? No, no, he's speaking of the temple and the old covenant system, right? More on that a little bit later. Even the term in, in verse 12 of 2 Peter chapter 3, when it talks about the elements melting with a fervent heat in verse 10 and verse 12, the elements, is it's the same word and the same kind of phrase that you read about in Galatians chapter 4 verse 3, which talks about the elemental religious system, the rituals of religion and the religious systems of the day. You also see this in Colossians 2.8 uh, to uh, verse 20 and 22. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12 speaks of this phrase, the elements being the religious system of the old covenant. What was God coming to do away with? He was literally going to burn up 
everything pertaining to the old covenant system so that they could not engage in old covenant temple worship anymore at all. Not did, not only did it just lose its spiritual authority and power, it lost its physical ability to even be exercised. That's how much God was going to bring an end to the old covenant system. Why? Because he was bringing about a new covenant. And this new covenant inaugurated at a table at a meal, not a huge ceremony with a ton of fanfare. Much like the incarnation, the new covenant is inaugurated in a very normal human activity, and that is just sitting down at a meal. It becomes ratified at the cross and validated in the resurrection, signed, sealed, and delivered. The Christic covenant is what the apostles died preaching. They, they were being killed by those who were defending an old covenant system. That old covenant system had no choice but to be destroyed by fire because that was the system that was actually bringing death to the apostles. The apostles were bringing people out of the old covenant system, telling them, listen, don't engage in that old covenant system anymore. Don't just add Jesus to your old covenant religious ritual. Jesus is everything. He is all you need. He is 100% capable of saving you single-handedly. You don't need anything else but Jesus. And that message still exists today. However, we still are looking for this coming judgment to deal with the sin issue as opposed to looking at the cross and preaching what the cross has already done. And that's what I'm saying. The ministers and preachers today, we've got to get a fresh revelation of what the cross has accomplished. Because in 2,000 years of history, since the cross and the ending of the Old Covenant in 70 AD, and it's an honest question you need to answer, can you find a single time in history where you can definitively, without question, say, God dropped the hammer of judgment on this people group or that people group, this nation or that body of Christ here and there in this generation or that generation. God has judged people, listen, listen to what I'm about to say, individually and personally since the cross, right? That's super important to understand. Ananias and Sapphira, we don't even know if these, these folks were even Christians. As far as we can tell, they weren't. Why? Because even though they were part of the community, Peter says, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And Satan doesn't fill your heart accidentally. History records that around Jerusalem in that time, there was a ton of occultic activity. So these people appeared to have been the kind of people who partnered with occultic activity or demonic influence and yet infiltrated the burgeoning body of Christ perhaps for some level of financial influence, right? So uh, what ends up happening here is you see Peter exposing these folks who have come in lying, not just to the church, but to the Holy Spirit. And listen, that wasn't just an accident, right? So I don't even think that they were even believers in Jesus. At, at the very least, they represented people who just added Jesus to a religious belief system that they had already adopted and elevated above Christ. You see Herod, uh, you see him uh, literally uh, uh, dying, and the Bible says being eaten by worms. Why? Because he took glory to himself and, and didn't give the glory to God. People said it's the voice of God, not a man. He's like, yeah, I'll take that, and he ends up dying. That would be considered a new, new covenant judgment, but that's an individual person. This is what God does. 
Hebrews chapter 12 says, God loves he chastens and scourges every son who comes to him. For if he doesn't chasten you, are you even his child? So the ability to be corrected individually by God is a thing that validates our own sonship. In modern days, I've even seen as a, a friend of mine, I won't mention a name, but it was a friend of mine who is a, a, a prophetic voice, a powerful prophetic voice in the earth uh, today uh, in in uh, laying hold of a particular political position. He lost his family, he lost his church, and thought everybody else was unrighteous, and he alone was just the righteous voice, him along uh, with a handful of other prophets, and, uh, and, and actually started a church across from his old church down the road. Uh, his wife pastored the old church, and he pastored the new church. I mean, you talk about delusional uh, thinking that this is even remotely a good witness for the body of Christ. And so uh, uh, God spoke to him because God did speak to him. This is a man I knew very, very well. He and I spent time together and he came and preached in our church. And uh, God spoke to him and told him, I want you to stop posting about politics. He was getting online posting every single day something about political this and political that. And whether it was right or not, um, it suddenly was not the issue. The spirit and the attitude that he was carrying in, in, in what he was posting, what he was putting out there, wasn't uh, wasn't uh, reflecting of the kingdom of God, even if the information was correct or not. That wasn't the issue. It was the spirit he's putting out there. And uh, it's what a lot of people are doing right now. They justify the wrong spirit because they're putting out what they believe is right information. And so God spoke to him, and and he rightly listened. And God told him, don't post anything anymore. I want you to keep silent about this. And, uh, and so I, I talked to him on the phone. I called him up and and he said to me, he said, God spoke to me really, really strongly and said, I'm not to post anything anymore. And I said, good. I said, I was getting, just getting afraid for you. And, uh, and then uh, something happened in the news and he just snapped and said, got online. I saw the post come out. He didn't call me, didn't text or anything about it. I just saw the post come out. And it simply said, um, so many months ago, I think it was six or eight months ago, God told me not to post anything anymore, but I can't keep silent any longer. He saw a measure of unrighteousness or something that he considered to be unrighteous happen in the news or in culture, and he felt like it was his duty uh, not to obey the word of the Lord, but to supersede the word of the Lord and to do what was right in his own eyes. And I thought to myself, and this, this post came out, and I thought to myself, I need to call him. I'm going to call him tomorrow, and uh, I, I need to talk to him, but I'll give him a chance to cool down. Four hours after he posted that, he had a heart attack and died. Now you say, Bill, that's coincidence. I don't think that what happened to my friend was a coincidence. Well, you say that makes God seem awfully cruel. But when you're called by God to preach or teach or prophesy, there's a responsibility that comes with that call. James said in James chapter 3, under the New Covenant, by the way, not many of you should desire to become teachers because you're going to be dealt with more harshly or strictly. Why? Well, because speaking for God and revealing his nature and character and word to people is important. And God doesn't like being misrepresented under any covenant. And when someone says that God spoke to them to do one thing and then they go out and tell everybody under their sphere of influence that they're going to do the exact opposite, what they're doing is exalting their disobedience of the word of the Lord as the more righteous position. 
Now, it's one thing to simply ignore the words of Jesus. Let's say that Jesus says, love your enemies, and you think to yourself, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to hate my enemies. And if you know in your heart that that's the wrong move, but you just can't help yourself, listen, I think there's grace for that. Even for Christian haters, as long as you know you're just being a donkey's rear end, right? But it's another thing entirely to declare that Jesus said to love your enemies, but then to go out and tell everyone who listens to you that you're intentionally going to not do that. Instead, you're going to hate your enemies because that's the righteous move. See, that's not just equating your righteousness with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's literally diminishing his holiness and exalting your own. When the world tries to silence you from speaking truth, listen, speak louder. But if God ever comes to you and tells you to shut up and keep quiet, it's probably because you don't yet know what spirit you are of. And the problem in that moment is that the spirit that you are of, that is not of Christ, will actually somehow convince you to speak against the word of the Lord even louder. See, I see a lot of people that give false words and false prophecies. What do you make of that, Bill? How come God's not, you know, taking them out or taking them home? Yeah, I would say that they probably don't have a real call. I think they're probably just making stuff up. It's not that they heard the word of the Lord and decided to do something else. I think a lot of them never heard of the word, word of the Lord in the first place. So let me just say this real quick about, about my friend. I want to say, I don't question his salvation at all. Don't question the salvation of my friend. I do believe he's with the Lord. I do believe, though, that his public disobedience cut off his public influence and forfeited his platform. You know the most disturbing part to me of this whole story, and I'll get back on this message here in just a second, but the most disturbing part of this whole story to me is the thousands of Instagram followers that cheered on that disobedience. I'm fairly certain that even on this platform, on this podcast platform, some of you who did that are listening to this podcast. People ask me all the time, do you ever preach on repentance? Yeah, I do. Here goes. If you cheer on, follow, and support anybody who preaches a message of hate your enemies, no matter what God says, repent and do it quickly. God has no problem dealing with you individually, just as a father will discipline their own children. Under grace, God will give you the freedom to walk away. But don't be surprised if God doesn't confront you and bring discipline into your life. And listen, I got to tell you, the discipline of God is not a bad thing. It actually saves us. It, there's something about the way that God deals with us that brings a, a grace and a salvation into our lives that, that has such value to it that it shows us really that we're his children and that he loves us very much. God's not an abusive father. And when he brings correction into our lives, it's for our salvation. And often it's saving us from ourselves. All right, so let's back up and go to 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want to point out just a few things to you that uh, that might help you out. And we'll talk about this heaven and earth thing a little bit more because I, I, I can feel... Uh, even just sitting here recording this, I can feel some of you going, wait a minute, this is something I've never heard. All right, so one of the first things you need to understand about what Peter is writing here is for New Covenant Jews, their enemies, the people who were opposing them the most, were fellow Jews, 
under the old covenant. They were persecuting the apostles and people who had believed in Jesus. So the new covenant saints, they longed for a future judgment upon those who were persecuting them. You see this in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. It says, They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? This is the system of the old covenant and those under the old covenant, the same people who had killed Jesus, were now trying to stamp out the church. Well, back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, there was a prophecy where God promised to bring judgment, and it was on those who were actually his own people. And so the New Covenant believers, uh, John, Paul, Peter, in their, in their writings, will quote Deuteronomy chapter 32. And let me just paraphrase it for you. It says, Vengeance is mine and recompense. And at that time when their foot shall slide, the day of their calamity is at hand. The things that are to come on them shall make haste, for the Lord will judge his people. Repent himself for his servants. When he sees their power is gone, there's none remaining, shut up or left at large. So you have this, this perspective here where God is coming to basically bring correction to his own. The Bible says he came to his own, and is speaking of Jesus, he came to his own, and his own received him not. But to many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. So he comes to the chosen people, he comes to his people, and he says, look, here's here's the new covenant, and they reject the new covenant. They reject Jesus, right? And so now they make themselves, in that rejection, his own people make themselves the obvious target for this cryptic prophecy of Deuteronomy chapter 32, where God is going to come and end up judging his own people. And not just that, but take away their power. What was the power that they operated under? It was an old covenant system, and a covenant was given to them by God. So there's a sense here where not just as their power is gone, but the old covenant system is gone. So it says there's none remaining Uh, shut up or left at large. In other words, there's just nothing of the old covenant left in power or in purpose at all. So in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, he says here, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter seems to be referencing the promise to the fathers that was given all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 32. You see the Apostle Paul referenced this same thing in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 verses 4 through 10. Down around verse 8 he says, In flaming fire, and speaking of the coming judgment, taking vengeance on them who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he will come to be glorified with the saints and admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed. So the idea here is apparently there's a prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 32 against those who are persecuting the church from within 
in the people of God that has apparently been forgotten about. And so what Paul and John and Peter are encouraging the church with is, wait, that prophecy is reserved for this moment. And I believe it was. Okay, so look with me in 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want you to go to verses 4 and 7. I just want to paraphrase this and say, they will say what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again. Like, what's the promise of his coming? Uh, Before the time of our ancestors, everything remains the same since the world was first created. Verse 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They're being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. So Peter here compares the destruction of the first, quote-unquote, heavens and earth by water with the destruction of the current heaven and earth, referring to the temple by fire. The bottom line of this entire argument is that the original promise in Deuteronomy that God would judge the current temple, his people and Jerusalem, or the old covenant, would be fulfilled by fire. And that's exactly what happened in A.D. 70. And you say, wait, but the Bible says that the earth will be destroyed. Well, Peter just says here that the earth was destroyed in the flood. Was the earth destroyed in the flood? Well, the known earth, the destruction of the system of the world at that time happened. But was the earth itself destroyed? No. So when we read these words, destroyed and uh, burned up and all of these things, we think of it completely being annihilated and done away with. But what was being done away with in the flood? Did God destroy the mountains and destroy everything? No, he, he preserved all of that. What did he destroy? The heavens and the earth at that time, the first heaven and earth, were destroyed Not the land that we live on, but the system that we live under. That's what God was judging. That's what he was bringing an end to. And Peter said that it happened. Now you might say, well, Bill, I don't buy this idea that the heavens and the earth is the temple or the old covenant system in Jerusalem. Well, if you don't buy that idea, then you're stuck under the law of Moses. Let me explain. Jesus said this. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law. That's Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18. Now, as long as we live here on this earth and we look at heaven and earth as being the world we live in, we would say that as long as the earth exists as we know it, then we must keep the law if you're taking what Jesus said absolutely literally, not understanding that heaven and earth meant the temple and old covenant system, right? So let's say you say, well, heaven and earth doesn't mean the temple or the old covenant system. It just literally means what it says, heaven and earth. Okay, then that means all 613 commandments in the Pentateuch must be followed until some cataclysmic event takes place, right? I mean, stop and think about it. If, if heaven and earth have to pass away before the law can go away, then, uh, then what does that mean for you today? Well, it means huge implications for you. 
We got a ton of Jubilee years to celebrate. So nobody's in debt. City, cities of refuge have to be built and resurrected, by the way, which is a law requiring certain cities to protect sinners from people trying to vengefully hurt or kill them. Uh, we got a ton of lambs to slaughter on the altar. Forget Sunday. We got to go back to the Sabbath rest on Saturday. And also, you got to go through your closet and throw out all your clothes that mix linen and cotton. And if you have any rebellious children, you got to stone them. So if you weren't aware, the Old Covenant system had some really massive implications. So if heaven and earth haven't passed away, then we've got to take a look at what it is that we are doing as a church. The heaven and earth spoken about by Jesus in Matthew 5.18 must mean the temple and the Old Covenant system. Otherwise, we are all under the law and the New Covenant was a lie. That would mean that Jesus brought about nothing on the cross. If heaven and earth literally means heaven and earth, and as long as it's here, the law is in effect, that means the incarnation, the new covenant, the sacrifice of Christ, and the resurrection really didn't accomplish a whole lot, and we're still under the law. Now you understand why there are a lot of people out there who think we're still under the law. They preach we're still under the law. And so they pine for the coming vengeance of Deuteronomy chapter 32, God to come and do what Jesus didn't do. They want God to come and send not a flood of water this time, but a flood of fire, because I feel like that's going to be the solution to the sin problem. Listen, the destruction of humanity didn't deal with the sin problem the first time around. It's not going to deal with it again. Why? Because the problem's been dealt with in Jesus Christ. That's why we're to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel of turning from our sin, our selfishness, of our own false identities, identities of our own making, to turn to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross because you were the reward that he got. In the joy set before him, you were the joy. I think it's so important for us to, to, to grab all of this and just see what the new covenant actually accomplished. Otherwise, we're going to start forcing the law of Moses all over again. So let me dive into this historical background on the heavens and the earth. Otherwise, you, you, you're going to be stuck for the rest of your life listening to people talk to you about apocalyptic imaginations of Armageddon-type you know, asteroids hitting the earth and, uh, and you got to see what Jesus was talking about. So I imagine some of you are really into this heaven and earth thing. You're thinking, wait, wait, wait give, me some, give me some background on this. So the Jews didn't talk about the physical universe when they spoke of heaven and earth together. In Jewish literature, the temple was constructed as, from their perspective, a portal connecting heaven and earth, the divine with the natural, the spiritual with the physical. It was called the navel of the earth and the gateway to heaven in the book of Enoch. In Genesis uh, chapter 11, the Mesopotamian tower, uh, just like that, it was the temple connecting the realm of God to the realm where humanity lives. Uh, the, to reflect this whole belief system, the Jerusalem temple had to be built to look a bit like a, like a microcosm of the universe. 
King David wrote about this in Psalm uh, 78, verse 69. He says, He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. So the actual holy place and most holy place inside the temple building were constructed like earth and heaven. The courts outside represented the sea, right? According to Josephus, there's two parts of the tabernacle that were approachable to all, but there was one that is not. And Josephus actually explains, he's an outsider looking in here, he explained that in doing this, Moses was signifying the earth and the sea. These two are accessible to everybody, but the third portion he reserved for God alone because, as he quoted, he says, heaven is inaccessible to men. So you had this veil that was between the accessible and the inaccessible parts of the temple. And that was designed to represent the entire world, heaven and earth, coming together during the time of the Old Covenant all the way up until the time of Christ. Uh, Josephus uh, talks about that the veil was composed of four material elements representing the four elements of earth, earth, water, air, and fire. Strangely enough, heaven was beyond that material world, so it was behind that veil of earth. Now, outside the walls of the temple, the court itself surrounding the temple resembled the sea. In the Talmud, rabbis depicted the temple walls, the walls outside of the buildings of the temple, looking like the sea just as the sea surrounds the world. As a matter of fact, there's a, a record in the Talmud that says, the court surrounds the temple just as the sea surrounds the world. Talmudic tradition. And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense, except that the ancients believed that the earth was just one huge mass of land surrounded entirely by the sea. And so the temple reflected that perspective. So the, the part of the temple that was accessible in the surrounding courts embodied both the landmass and the sea, which is what they believed the earth to be. And the most holy place was heaven where God's presence resided. So from ancient tradition all the way out in the desert, all the way to Jerusalem, the, the temple was the heavens and the earth. Now, let's just pretend for a moment that you and I are in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, and we hear his prediction of heaven and earth passing away. Now, what would we think? We would think he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Why do we think that? Because many contemporary songs and writers and architecture of the day made the connection between the temple and heaven and earth. This goes all the way back to guys like Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 65, starting in verse 17, Isaiah used that same language of heaven and earth to depict Jerusalem and the citizens of the city. It says in Isaiah 65, 17, it says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. So the parallel here is heaven and earth is Jerusalem and her people. 
And of course, the people of God were communing with God in that place of the temple. Isaiah here was predicting the eventual reconstruction of Jerusalem after its destruction at the hands of Babylon and other invaders. So Jesus isn't the first prophet to be talking about the language of heaven and the earth for Jerusalem, the temple, and the people of God. Jerusalem is the place where the people encountered the presence of God on earth, and the temple is that portal where heaven and earth meant. So, interpreting Jesus' language of heaven and earth passing away in Matthew 5.18 as the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, it fits with the rest of Scripture and the rest of the prophetic messages from the prophets all the way down through Jesus. Uh, Jeremiah smashed a pot outside of the city to predict Jerusalem's fall to Babylon in Jeremiah chapter 19. Jesus, symbolically, he acted out God's judgment on Jerusalem, the Jerusalem temple, and he verbally condemned the temple in Mark chapter 11. Guys, remember all the tables you flipped over? He says, you've made God's house of prayer into a den of thieves. In Luke chapter 21, verses 20 and 24, Jesus gives a graphic picture of how Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies and the temple will be destroyed. So Jesus knew that Jerusalem and the temple were about to be destroyed, and that was a significant portion of his teaching. The entire law, all the Mosaic law, would be completely done away with once the temple came down. So what was going to replace the temple? Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, the entire Sermon on the Mount with its blessings and curses and instructions given from a mountain, like Moses got the law from God on Mount Sinai, they're designed to be the new giving of God's instruction. So what in the world was Jesus doing there in the Sermon on the Mount? He was redefining and clarifying all of their misunderstandings about the Torah. He was completely redefining the Torah for this generation. And when he gets done teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, it says that they were astonished because he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. See, what did the scribes do? All the scribes and the Pharisees could do was see what was written and basically teach out of a textbook that was already written. But speaking as one who had authority is like talking to the author of the book, who's now giving clarity on what he's written. It would do us well to go back and look at the Sermon on the Mount all over again and see it with a new covenant lens and recognize that the entire thing points us to a revelation of union and the grace of Jesus Christ alone as the source of our salvation. Otherwise, we just end up assuming things about Jesus' message, message and superimposing it with, with law-based teaching. And when we do that, we create all kinds of confusion and contradictions of thought. Using the Bible, we can create confusion and contradictions of thought. We would have to come to this realization that, wait, the Mosaic law still reigns in effect until an asteroid comes and incinerates us all. And, uh, and that's not the way it is. You got to hear what Jesus said in first century Israel and be at peace, rest. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, take no thought for tomorrow. Look, this is good news. You don't have to switch your Sabbath to Saturday. You don't have to uh, stop wearing your mixed 
mixed linen, cotton clothing. You don't have to uh, kill your rebellious kids. And you can keep eating bacon. That's good news. Uh, listen, you don't you don't have to like avoid shellfish in your diet. Uh, the gospel and the new covenant has opened up a whole world of possibilities for us. I want to leave you with this scripture out of Hebrews. And if you haven't done the Hebrews study yet, you need to do it. Uh, the Hebrews study, just go to HebrewsStudy.com and sign up for that. And pretty soon we're going to be releasing Ephesians as well. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 8 and 9 says that the temple was actually a symbol of the quote-unquote present time, not the new covenant inaugurated age that Jesus brought about. This arrival of the new covenant, the Christic covenant, that the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ made possible meant that the old covenant with his temple sacrifices and its laws would soon come to an end. And Hebrews 8 describes that transition as the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy about a new covenant that would replace the old covenant. So after Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 31 is quoted in Hebrews 8, he says in Hebrews 8, the writer says, when God said a new covenant, quoting Hebrews 8 13 here says, when God said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Hebrews right here is talking about the destruction of the temple in the first century that was about to come about. When that happened during the Roman invasion of Jerusalem, the old covenant was shut down once and for all. It lost all power, authority, and ability to be practiced. It hasn't been practiced since. And now Jesus' words that a new covenant has come and the gift of the Holy Spirit is available for every one of us. Now this changes everything because now the Holy Spirit comes to dwell not just with you but within you, making you the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Now you, filled with the Spirit of God, are that place where heaven and earth meet together again. That's exactly what, what Adam was. Adam was a mix of the dirt of earth and the breath of God. He literally was born, humanity was born as a convergence point between heaven and earth. And in Christ, we are restored to that place once again. And listen, we look for the return of Jesus Christ. We absolutely do. But I can tell you, he's not coming back to finish something that he didn't finish on the cross. He's coming back to completely remove all perspective of distance and separation once and for all between you and God. Anything that's left of distance and separation between you and God He's going to remove all of that. But can I tell you, it's already been removed. It's already been removed in the cross and in the resurrection. The veil was torn, and now you and I are invited to turn our face toward the Lord and to receive the grace of salvation, to receive the grace of love, the, the, the invitation to that place of surrender where we find ourselves in reconciled rest with the heart of God, to receive by faith 
the spirit of adoption, whereby we can actually call God Father. Listen, Jesus came as a son of God to invite us into that relationship, to invite us into this family. Maybe family has been a dirty word in your vocabulary. Maybe it's family is something you've never really known before. That's what God is creating. He's creating family. That's what the kingdom of God is. It really is all about family. It's not some hierarchy or dictatorship where uh, we just have a benevolent dictator. It sits in some lofty palace somewhere. and We are serfs and peasants out around the kingdom. That's not the way this thing works. This is a father who has a table, and that table has a seat at it, and that seat has your name on it. And you get to dine with dad at the banquet table. This is a family picture that God is creating. And can I tell you, you're invited to be a part of that family. And today, I just want you to to hear this. This is an extended invitation to you. You're just as worthy as me or anybody else, no matter what you've done or where you've been. Jesus sees you and he knows you and he loves you anyway. And his invitation is for you. And this is the gospel that we preach. I talk on this on this podcast to people I think primarily who are believers who know the, the Bible and just want to learn more about the scriptures. And we're all on this journey of learning. But I know that there are got, there's got to be people that are listening to this that have never heard the gospel before. And you're going, I want to be a part of this. I want to know more about this. And listen, you can today. The Holy Spirit himself will be your teacher if you'll let him. And today, by faith, right now, if you say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ, would you just pray with me and just say, Jesus, I give you my life. By faith, I receive your grace right now. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Teach me how to walk in obedience to your voice. Teach me how to hear your voice. Teach me how to feel your presence. And Lord, teach me what it means to be your child. I receive your grace, forgiving me of all of my sins. To take away everything that I was, every lie that I've ever believed about myself, and replace it with the newness of your life in me. Jesus, I want to know you. So teach me to hear your voice. Teach me to learn from your word. And guide me to represent you to a world that needs your love, that needs your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. I receive you by faith now, and I am your child now and forever. Amen. And this amen, by the way, is no means an end to this conversation. This is a conversation that you're going to have for all eternity. And right now, I just believe by faith that you're just being flooded with a revelation of the fact that you're forgiven, that you're, you're whole, you're reconciled, that there's no part of you that's not complete, that every moment in the, the journey of your story that has brought you to this second right now has been something that you can give thanks for. You can say, thank you, Lord, for bringing me through all of my life to this moment right here. So I encourage you to continue a conversation with God long after this podcast is done. And if you'd like to reach out to us, you can do so by going to my website. Go to BillVanderbush.com, and there's a booking form on there, a contact form. There's some place in there where you can just write whatever kind of message you want to write there. There's also all kinds of resources on there, and a lot of them are free, and you're totally welcome to download anything you like. Tons of stuff out on YouTube. But I would really encourage you, get a good Bible. I use the New American Standard Version. I like that one. N-A-S-B. Um, New King James is fine too, NIV is okay, 
whatever you want to get, Passion Translation, that's a fun one. Uh, but I encourage you to go get an NASB Bible. NASB stands for New American Standard Bible. And I encourage you to get one of those. Go to the Gospel of John. Go to Romans. Listen, you go to Romans, you learn how to, how to live for Christ. You go to John, you learn how to love Jesus. You go to the letters of Paul, and you learn how to walk with him and how to grow in grace. And that's an amazing thing. Uh, I didn't even get to the last part of, of 2 Peter chapter 3, where where Peter says, uh, our brother Paul writes things that are difficult to understand. Then he goes on to say, nevertheless, grow in grace. Even Peter had a hard time understanding the, uh, the grace that Paul had come to a revelation of. And, you know, maybe that's a lifetime of discovery to learn how good God really is. May you grow in grace. And I just speak the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ over you today. Thanks for listening. Thank you.